Today marks 20 years since emergency responders found a murdered woman inside of a burning home in Kill Devil Hills. The victim was 33-year-old Denise Johnson. You wouldn't know it looking at this home that something terrible happened here 20 years ago, a horrible crime that is yet to be solved. I remember seeing heavy black smoke up in the air. I just remember a pool of blood and her laying in it. We knew obviously something was way wrong. This wasn't just a routine call. On July 13, 1997, someone brutally murdered 33-year-old Denise Johnson inside her childhood home in North Carolina, then set it on fire. For 22 years, Johnson's killer has eluded police, living among us undetected. This is Counterclock, the investigation into the unsolved murder of Denise Johnson. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. In the spring of 1997, just a few months before she was murdered, Denise put an ad in the newspaper, Roommate Wanted, and she quickly got a response. A woman named Karen Biddinger replied and asked to live with Denise. She moved in in May of 1997, just two months before the crime. Shortly after the murder, the Johnson family says Karen pretty much disappeared, but not before police interviewed her. With only her name to go on, I began researching Karen. Donnie Johnson's faint memory of the young woman helped me narrow my pool of people. She was 20 at the time, so she'll be 40 now. In 1997. And the last time you talked to her was in 1997? Oh, yeah, like two days after the murder. And that was it? Mm-hmm. She called me up and wanted something cut that she was left there. Because she came and moved all her stuff out, like, two days later. First of all, they released the house the next day, you know. So that right there, you lose evidence. So, but and they let her come in and get her stuff before they let us come back in. That's very interesting. It is. She evidently left some cup, and so she called me up and said, "I want my cup." And I said, "Well, you can come get your cup." But you know, she goes, "No, I want you to um, mail it to me." And I said, "No, I'm not mailing you no cups. You want your cup? Come get it." And that's the last I ever heard of her. Karen was a complete mystery. A few newspaper articles from 1997 had a sentence or two about her, but that was pretty much it. She completely dropped off the radar after Denise's funeral, which took place just a few days after the crime. Karen gave the Johnson family little explanation of why she wasn't around at the time of the murder. Conveniently that night, she wasn't there. She said it was too hot to stay there. That's what she took on the whole day. I didn't know the girl. I only talked to her on the phone twice. But she said it was just so hot, I stayed at a friend's house. Donnie says in July 1997, Denise had complained that her air conditioning unit on the house had broken. Karen leaving because it was too hot would have made sense. And Donnie mentioned that the last time she'd heard about Karen, she was told she lived in Florida and had gotten into some trouble down there. I began checking criminal arrest records and public records databases, I researched every county jail in the state, and I eventually got a hit. Karen Bittinger was now 41 years old and, as of 2012, living in Jacksonville, Florida. 
Jacksonville County Sheriff's Office has an extensive arrest history for Karen. She's been arrested 11 times there, not for violent offenses, but mostly drug crimes and prostitution. Karen had a different address on almost every arrest report, which means she moved around a lot. Her earliest arrest in Jacksonville was in 2007, 10 years after Denise's murder. The home address on her jail paperwork listed her as being from Norfolk, Virginia. The Johnson family told police that Karen Bittinger that rented from Denise in 1997 was from Norfolk, Virginia. The most recent arrest report had a telephone number listed for Karen, so I called it. Hello? Hi, I'm looking for Miss Karen Bittinger. Hi, she's calling. Yeah, my name is Delia D'Ambra. I'm actually a journalist. I'm working on a story. I was trying to get in touch with Miss Biddinger. What kind of story are you working on? If this is her or she's around, I'm actually doing an investigative piece on a murder from 21 years ago in Kildover Hills, North Carolina, of a woman named Denise Johnson. Denise Johnson? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, this is Carrie. The Karen on the other end of the line was the woman I was looking for. It's not a day that I don't think about it. To put a cinder block house on fire is not that easy. That scared me. It still scares me. When was the last time that you were ever contacted by investigators about this case? Never. Nobody's spoken to you <laughs> since 1997? Nope. Karen and I had more than two decades separating the last time she discussed Denise's murder with anyone. How did you end up with Denise as a roommate in her house? I was with this guy since I was really young, and I just didn't want to be with him anymore. I just, I need, I wanted to leave him. So I just opened up the newspaper, and I went to this roommate wanted ad, seriously. And when I called her, she actually said that she had already filmed the spot or the, the room, and I don't remember, I don't know if something that I said, or maybe she just liked the way I talked to her. She was curious about me. So she was, well, well, I already told somebody that they could move in. And I don't know if he had already given her a deposit or maybe he was supposed to stop by. I don't I remember. She told me to come by anyways. And she said, but don't get your hopes up because uh, I already told somebody that they could have it. She goes, but just come over anyways. She had this dog. His name was Kayridge. It was a really huge I think it was between like a like a bloodhound and like golden retriever. He was like 120, 130 pounds. I mean, he was a big dog. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the dog immediately liked me. And I actually opened the door and walked in. She goes, I've never seen him, my dog, ever do that. He never lets anybody in the house, especially people he does not know. She goes, and I've had this dog since he was a puppy. I've never seen him take to anybody the way he just took to you. She goes, so... That must be something really good. There must be something really special about you. Just, he doesn't ever let anybody in the house. That's how I got it. She changed her mind right that second and said, you know what? I want you to live here, not this other person. Who was the person that she ended up saying no to and took you instead? Who was that person? I don't know. I never asked. I just know it was a guy. I never asked. Maybe she did tell me, but I never thought about it until actually right now. So just like that, the summer of 1997 was off to a decent start between the two. My room was like immediately to the right. I had that room. I think I lived there for like maybe two or three months. It was before the beginning of summer, 
maybe springtime is when they moved in. It was, yeah, I, was I wasn't there very long because right. of what happened. A few weeks before the murder, Karen says she got a job at a new seafood restaurant and bar. Denise was working as a waitress, too, in another restaurant. The two bumped into one another often at the house in between their schedules. They weren't best friends, but Bittinger says they never really had any problems. In the hours before Denise's murder, Karen says she and Denise did see each other. Denise wanted something from Karen. Her request was specific and according to Karen, could be a big piece of the puzzle in solving what happened to Denise later that night. Karen says Denise asked her for money in the hours before she died. She actually came to my work that night, and she wanted her rent money early. I just gave it to her. But she wanted it, and it was like... She wanted the money, and she was really adamant about it. Not like asking, but kind of like demanding. So, anyways, I just gave her, and I, I don't know, it was like three, four hundred dollars. And I'll never forget it because the next day I'm thinking, oh my god, I just gave her like I don't know what it was, three or four hundred dollars, and I was like, now that's gone. I'll never. Now I just screwed myself. That's why I remember her coming in that night. Because I gave her that much, I gave her a large amount of cash because she demanded on having it. Karen's story that Denise wanted rent money early and came into Karen's work to get it isn't anywhere in the timeline that police gave me about Denise's movements in the hours before the crime. Investigators have gone on record saying they have actual proof that Denise was first at work, then left, went to the Amco gas station near her house and made a purchase, which they found a receipt for. Then she ended up at home before someone killed her. I asked Karen more about her alibi and where she told police she was in the early morning of July 13, 1997. She says around 2 in the morning she clocked out of work. She intended to go home and even promised a co-worker a ride, but right at the last minute, Karen decided to go to a friend named Jan's house in Nags Head. That's a town 20 minutes and several miles south of her and Denise's home, if I had gone home, when I said I was going to go home, I probably would have been dead on the floor, too. Why did you go to Jan's that night instead of going home? I don't know. I'm telling you, and I've, I tell my fiance, I was like, I don't know. I have no idea because it doesn't make any sense because I planned on all night long going home. And I know it sounds very, maybe not believable, but I don't know. Maybe uh, it's like this God came down and just like, made sure I just didn't go in the other direction I was supposed to go in because maybe I wasn't supposed to be there. Fate or not, Karen decided not to go home the morning Denise was killed. She made a left turn out of where she worked and headed in the opposite direction instead of making a right turn that would have put her in the path of the killer within a matter of minutes of leaving work. When the cops got to the crime scene and found Denise dead the next morning, Karen was someone they needed to talk to right away. I left Jan's house and immediately went to my house because that's what they told me to do. Even though the whole thing was blocked off. They were waiting there for me. The day after the murder, police and firefighters walked you through the crime scene? Yeah, they let me in my room. Yeah, shocking, right? Yeah. Very strange. That's how I knew what my room looked like. That's how I knew that my bed caught on fire and that my picture and my TV was just melted into... You know, and I asked them about it right then and there. And they said these were deliberate fires. 
Deliberate fires and intentional arson is what really disturbs Karen. That scared me. It still scares me. It disturbed her so much so that she moved out the next day and never went back. Do you think whoever did this targeted Denise or do you think they were coming after you? I don't know. I wondered the same thing and I still have very bad dreams. I'm still scared of the dark to this day. I don't like to be alone by myself like at night, ever. I asked Karen outright if she killed Denise or planned the murder. I did not kill her. I had nothing to do with it, zero to do with it. I didn't have anything to do with it, and I have nothing to hide, so otherwise I wouldn't have even talked to you. You don't know anyone that had any ill intentions toward Denise or would have... Just the neighbor, the neighbor and the neighbor's girlfriend. The guy that lives, like if you're looking at her front house, that's where you need to start looking. But what was it about this guy that seemed weird? I mean, why was he coming? She was having an affair with him. The the next door neighbor. Yes, she was also having an affair with the next door neighbor. The next door neighbor had this crazy psycho girlfriend who also lived somewhere like out of town. This was the first time I'd ever heard anything about a next door neighbor being tied to Denise. The only neighbor I was able to find that had any connection to the case was Rob Constantineau, who had called 911 the morning of the crime. Karen seemed to know a lot about the man who lived directly next door to her and Denise. She could only remember his first name, Eric, and that he periodically had a young boy visit that she assumed was his son. But what she remembers most? The man's girlfriend from out of town. I know that they had had confrontations before her and the other girl. She's called Denise over at his house, the neighbor's house, on a few occasions, and has come over to Denise's house while he was there. She would come freaking up, you know, freaking out at the front door, banging and screaming and just going crazy. And, yeah, I've seen it. I saw it myself. That's how I'm saying what I'm saying. Right. This is not hearsay. This is, I know what I saw. When was the last time there was, like, a bad episode of that in relation? It was just a few days before and she was just I think she caught them I remember being at at the house one night and Denise came from his house she goes oh man his girlfriend walked in and she said she didn't have all of her clothes on and her shirt was off and the girlfriend just saw it and I mean she was a psycho 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 and as soon as that fire happened, it's like they completely disappeared into thin air. This mystery couple was an entirely new lead. As her roommate at the time, you remember seeing this man come and go from Denise's home. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I used to talk to him. I was his neighbor. I needed to know if police had ever looked into the information Karen was telling me. When you talked to police after Denise's murder, did you tell them any of this? Yeah. And they just, you know, they waited way too long to talk to me. Did you know they never, how can they say that they found multiple types of fingerprints in her house? You know how I know that's a bunch of crap? Because they never even took mine. So how do they know who's a who's? So clearly Karen didn't have a great experience with law enforcement. To this day, she still doesn't trust them. It's not necessarily surprising. She's been arrested multiple times for felony crimes. But still... She said she tried to make sure in 1997, Kill Devil Hills detectives investigated the man next door and his girlfriend. 
I told him, I was like, look, you need to talk to that guy right there. Because he totally denied about having any sexual relations with her when I know for a fact that, that they did. And if this woman was crazy enough, I could see her going in and, you know, you know that she had threatened her a few times. She wanted to kill her, but, I mean, that doesn't really, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, when they're angry. But so you're telling me that her throat was cut. That's pretty brutal. Just like Donnie Johnson and Rob Constantineau, there was a detail Bittinger brought up to police that she thought was strange. K-Ridge. She would never let that dog outside. Just like, okay, I'm going to bed. Now you go to sleep in the backyard. No, it wasn't that kind of dog. That dog go outside and then it would be inside. She didn't make the dog stay outside. How else could you get into the house unless you really knew this dog? This dog was a big boy. And he would have gone ballistic. So for the dog to be outside is unusual in itself. I mean, he would come and go, but she would never intentionally make the dog stay outside. So somebody put the dog outside. Karen was one of the first people ever let back into the crime scene on the morning of the murder. She says detectives told her how K Ridge was secured in the back of the home. And it's this detail that has her convinced she knows who's responsible. When I asked Karen what police told her K-Ridge had been tied up with, she was very specific. They said it was a child's jump rope. That detail, Karen says, has made her mind up on who was with Denise on the night of her murder. Karen says Eric and the young boy who she'd seen with him next door would have been more likely to have a child's jump rope than Denise. That item was not something she knew her or Denise kept in their cottage. It all points to the neighbor. And I can't believe they never wanted to listen to one. They just totally bypassed everything I said. Because if somebody slit her throat, that almost looks like a sign of passion or that was intentional. It wasn't like a robbery. Karen has wondered for years who the woman was who was last seen with Denise at the gas station. And if it was that woman who was also giving Denise problems, the woman dating the next door neighbor, Eric. Why do you think Denise would have been with the girlfriend of the man she was sleeping with? Or maybe she was just following her. The psycho girlfriend was following Denise. Yeah, I mean, because they said she was seen with another woman, but not like they were side by side. Like maybe they were in the, like if she went to the store and she was following her and driving around, then she would walk into the store. Karen knows she can't be the only one with these questions lingering for two decades. She moved away from the area, but was in the party scene for a long time. She remembers people always talked about the crime. And even now, most nights in Kill Devil Hills, people find a bar or restaurant to kill time at. In a small town, when people drink, they talk. Donnie Johnson knows Denise's name has slipped out of more than one person's mouth who's sitting propped up on a bar stool or sliding into a smoke-filled booth. Oh, I guarantee you somebody in a bar somewhere has talked about it. I guarantee it. You know, people get loose when they're drinking a lot. I'm sure somebody's talked about it, and I'm sure there's people down there that know because of the lifestyle they live, they're too afraid to come forward. The Outer Banks that exists now has new generations of locals who were just kids when Denise was murdered. Kids like me. They've grown up and started families experiences Denise will never have. She never got to get married. She never got to have kids. 
Hometown chatter in bars isn't the only place people bring up the cold case. They've also been talking about it online. Conversations about Denise Johnson are happening. Somebody started a page called Does Anyone Remember? This website, Does Anyone Remember, hosted a chat forum called Topics, and it had a thread about Denise that someone started in 2010. That thread still exists today, so I went through it, searching for any information that could be valuable. A user named Beach Native 5th Gen created the original thread for the post. The person asked if anyone remembered Denise Johnson's murder and wanted to know if anyone had ever been caught. They wrote they thought Denise was really pretty. Everyone else on the thread chimed in with what they thought about the unsolved case. Donnie Johnson found the website in 2010, and at that time, she says she was pretty obsessed with her sister's case and really tried desperately to find out who the people were behind the usernames, but she never had any luck. I've scanned the site three or four times through, and I've read every comment carefully. Most of the comments are users bickering with one another about unrelated things to Denise's case. But the Beach Native 5th Gen username it keeps probing commenters for information. Comments on the post ultimately went silent in 2014. For four years, people were coming and going from the thread, weighing in on the case, talking about Denise's murder and potential suspects. Several users even posted more than once. Here are some of my colleagues to voice over verbatim what the online usernames wrote. I think everyone wonders about why this was never put to rest. Maybe because the county doesn't want the bad publicity for such things to happen in a resort area. Don't know, but it was a terrible thing to happen. No one deserves what happened to her. February 7, 2010. I remember hearing another scenario from a few different places involving a jealous girlfriend or some guy DJ was seeing who confronted her that morning, attacked and killed her, then called the boyfriend who set the house on fire. February 9th, 2010. A lot of people were questioned, but a guy she had dated was grilled heavily, but let off. I knew him and knew he did not kill her. We all thought it was a jealous female killer from the beginning. Maybe someone who didn't want Denise seeing the girl's ex or something. Another neighbor on Denise's side of the street once told me he had always had a hunch, but was too freaked out, even five, six years later, to say anything about it. These users could just be circulating rumors, and they likely are, but I couldn't help but tuck away some of their theories in case I needed to reference them later. Shortly after discovering this blog forum, another member of the Johnson family reached out to me. So far for the podcast, you've only heard from Donnie Johnson, but Donnie isn't the only sibling Denise had. There are actually six Johnson sisters, including Denise. In August, Donnie Johnson convinced her sister, Dorisa, to do an interview with me. Nice to meet you on the phone, finally. Um, I'd like to meet you in person, too. Um, I saw you on Facebook. and I, I am so thankful and grateful for what you're doing for our family. I want to start out saying that. Yeah. It means a lot to me that somebody cares. She was my only little sister. Now I'm the youngest. She was a great caring girl. Loved everybody. She's just a great girl. She wasn't the smartest person in the world, but I loved her with all my heart and soul. You know, when Denise died and then my mom, oh, I'm sure it was too much. Both of them within three years, and then I had a baby in between there. It's a lot. Yeah, it was too much. It took a lot out of me. It took a lot out of our family to lose our little sister. 
When Denise was killed, Dorisa didn't live on the Outer Banks. She lived further inland in North Carolina, was married, and was raising a family. Distance didn't come between the Johnson siblings, though. In the early 1990s, and when their mother died a few years before Denise, the women were still a pretty tight-knit group. After July 1997, that all changed. Ever since that happened, all of us were so close. And then we lost part of our six sisters, you know, the six DJs. It was very devastating, but I think it just took a whole part of each one of our lives. And we were never just as close as we were then. Dorisa couldn't comprehend who would hurt Denise. To this day, there's just one red flag that pops into her mind— a concerning comment Denise made during a holiday gathering a year before her murder. The Thanksgiving before it all happened, Denise was really distraught, very distraught. She was so upset about somebody in Richmond, Virginia, okay? She always felt like somebody was trying to get her. And she was upset about somebody not caring about her, which is silly, you know. Like a guy? Yeah, like a guy. In Thanksgiving of 1996, Denise was upset about someone in Richmond, Virginia. And then she called you again in January or February of 1997 talking about a similar thing. So was she talking about multiple people, like a man or a woman or just a guy? With Denise, anything was never clear. You know what I mean? You'd have to drag it out of her, but she was always looking for some kind of help in my mind. She kept mentioning somebody after her, and that girl was always after her because she was jealous of her. That Eric dude next door, who had that girlfriend who hated Denise so much, I think he was, or his family, or somebody in there is connected to Richmond, Virginia. What did Denise ever tell you about the ex-girlfriend? She was just kind of mean and aggressive, but nothing specific. Again, there was another person bringing up the man who lived next door to Denise. Dorisa said she and Denise had last talked about him on the phone in January or February of 1997. The next time I heard from Denise, she was, yeah, murdered. Other than his name, Dorisa says Denise never opened up more about Eric. Always happy, but always hiding something. Unable to get very far with who was in and what was going on in Denise's life leading up to her murder, the Johnson sisters relied on police for information as the investigation began. Here's Donnie Johnson again. I think they've already established that she was woken up like in a startle. And that's really why she didn't have much time to do anything. This is Mulford's scenario that the person who came in was trying to have sex with her while she was asleep, but she woke up so he tried to strangle her, and Denise, you know, she was a fighter. So then that's where the struggle started in the bedroom. In addition to providing a scenario of how they think the crime occurred, police detectives needed the family's assistance in return. Help identifying key items at the crime scene. Here's Teresa Johnson again. They said that they found a neat camel lighter, and I don't know, they asked, I guess they asked us all, and I was the one that gave it to her. I gave Denise that lighter. Yeah. Did police ask you to identify that lighter? Yes. Why did they ask you that? Because they found that lighter on scene. That's why. Teresa jumped right up because that was 
from her husband who had given it to Denise, or Teresa had given it to Denise, but it was a rare lighter. Because Denise's murder involved arson, finding a lighter in the mix of evidence would have been critical. Teresa knew without a doubt it was Denise's, and only Denise's. It couldn't have come from the killer, but that doesn't mean it wasn't used by the killer. They were really interested in that lighter for a couple of our weeks. Along with the lighter, there was another item police needed the family to identify, an earring. Teresa Johnson recognized it as Denise's, but Donnie Johnson didn't. It was one earring and that lighter. I can tell you that for sure. The earring, I didn't recognize at all. So that was pretty much, they said, okay, thanks, and they left. After IDing the items, the sisters say detectives never came back to talk more about how the items fit into their investigation, and they never returned them to the family. Then we asked for that back, you know, the lighter and the earring, you know, and then they said they lost it all in Rome. Donnie Johnson says as the case dragged on and really no leads developed in the first year, Mulford couldn't provide answers about evidence vanishing or what was relevant to the case or not anymore. Later on, when I started talking to Mulford, you know, that's when I, w- I asked more about it. And I never heard anything about it. Now, I do know that some evidence was lost that they asked for back because I read it right in the report. But I don't know if it ever got sent back, if they ever found it, because, like I said, Mulford just kind of shined it off and said, oh, well, they probably still have it. Don't realize it. The whereabouts of that lighter and the earring are still unknown. They could be sitting in storage inside boxes of case evidence at Kildevil Hills Police Department, or they're waiting idle on a shelf at the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, or they're gone. Not knowing what happened to the items upsets Teresa Johnson. I don't feel like the cops did their job at all, no. They were just like in and out and what in the world, and the way they left, they're sitting out there. You know, the day it happened was, and it's ridiculous, but I guess they were just young. Yeah, it was back in the 90s. That was appalling. As days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, no one was voluntarily updating the family with information anymore. Donnie Johnson planted herself in Kill Devil Hills and pressed investigators daily about what was going on with the case, but only got less and less useful information. When I asked more about it, the police would say, we don't have enough for the DA to press charges on anybody. You know, I respect the police, but it's been a real hard not be angry at the way they've handled everything. Sometimes I feel like they just tell me what I want to hear to get me out of their face. Donnie says Jim Mulford eventually revealed to her that he was taking a closer look at the man who was first on scene. I do know that the police have told me that they've gotten, everybody they've interviewed, they've gotten DNA. They went and got his DNA. They called him in and they questioned him again several times till he loitered up. As soon as she could, Donnie Johnson told the rest of her family, including Teresa, this new development. He was the biggest guy question, and I think he had something to do with it. But Donnie also revealed something even more astonishing, something about those pieces of evidence. Donnie says Kill Devil Hills police detective Jim Mulford told her the items of evidence the family had wondered about all along came from the man that they were investigating more closely, the first eyewitness to the house fire. When they showed us these pieces of evidence, we were like, wait a minute, where did they come from? Because they were Denise's, and only she would have this, you know. 
Where did they say this evidence came from? Oh, they just said it was things we've recovered from someone. There was no reason for them to have those, especially one of them anyway. We were very perplexed about it, and to this day, still is. Donnie says Detective Mulford eventually just told her that unique camel lighter was found in the possession of the man who first saw the fire. The Good Samaritan who passed by on his way to pick up Rob Constantineau from work that morning. But remember, this is just Donnie's memory. I'm not saying doubt it, but I'm saying it's important to exercise caution because we can't ask Jim Mulford for himself where the items actually came from. Kill Devil Hills police have not told this podcast what kind, if any, evidence was retrieved from that man. We know for sure they questioned him and even impounded his truck, but he was never declared an official suspect, and police won't discuss with me in detail how relevant he is to the case. So I decided to find someone who could talk about him and try to understand more of what was going on from his perspective in 1997. When I went to the Dare County Clerk of Court's office to research any prior criminal offenses he might have, so I called a little bit earlier, and I have a, uh, a case number here. 4203. Yes. <laughs> Were you the lady I spoke to? <laughs> I discovered that in addition to a hit-and-run arrest, there was another file under his name. You can look for what piece you want copies of. Okay. Yeah, but just make sure you get it back in order because you can sure. take it out and, you know, lay it. But the divorce is it's always busy when we got court. I'll be right back. Sure. Do you mind if I just look over these documents right here? That's okay. I'll leave them in order. I found a divorce proceeding from the early 2000s, and with it, the name of the woman he'd married shortly after the Johnson murder, a woman named Vicki Broadus. Hello? Hi, I'm looking for Miss Vicki Broadus. This is she. Vicki doesn't live in North Carolina anymore. She's in Florida now, but she remembers her time in Kill Devil Hills well. It's related to an unsolved murder in Kill Devil Hills in 1997. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. I I think I am. Okay, gotcha. I'm reaching out to you. Is this the same one? Uh, This is Denise Johnson's murder in Kill Devil Hills in 1997. And her fire was there too, right? Exactly, yeah. Vicki lived full-time on the Outer Banks in 1997. She remembers Denise's murder because she was a local, but she also remembers it for another unique reason— Shortly after the crime, she began dating the man who was the first eyewitness to the scene. We met in 90, 99, 98 or 99 when we met. So it happened before I met him. Well, but if, I remember him talking about it. He brought it up. When you guys first met, did he come out with that information pretty quickly? Like, hey, I was looked into it for a murder? Like, what, what was that yeah. conversation? Pretty quickly, like, not immediately, but pretty quickly, yeah. Because it's like, yeah, that makes it a small place. So, you know, things get around, you know? So, for him to tell me, you know, instead of him just going, oh, she, is she going to know, you know, find out about this or not, he just he told me about it. You know what I mean? I just remember him saying that the police were asking him questions and looking at him for the murder, and they were pretty serious about it. It wasn't, like, lightly. It was kind of intense, and it really was upsetting to him, like, he was upset about it when he would tell me about it. It was like, it was scary, very scary, and it's upsetting to him it was. You know, we talked about it, and he was very emotional about it because we were very close, you know. We were, you know, not engaged, but we were very, we were living together. We were very close, so that's all, that's what it was, you know. Emotionally, what upset him the most about it? It was a very stressful time, you know. Could you imagine being accused of something like that? 
Vicky says after her boyfriend informed her police had interrogated him for the crime and he emphasized that he was innocent, they never talked about it again. When he met me, it was over. It wasn't like it was ongoing. It was over when he met me. Did you ask him? Did you do it? He told me he didn't. I didn't have to ask him at all. He told me that. And I just know him and his character. He's not going to do that. He's not like that at all. I think what he told me is that they didn't have enough evidence to actually do anything to him, is what he said. They had no reason to detain him, to arrest him, to do anything to him. And he was their current suspect. I remember just, like, curious and wondering, like, wow, this is kind of strange. It made me think about it. You know what I mean? Like, my relationship with him, like, what am I getting into, you know? You know what I mean? Like, yes, I did do that for a, little, for a while. But lots of guys I've dated, or, you know, he, he's what I married. He was never violent, never angry, never did any of that stuff, ever. Never. Vicki married her boyfriend in 1999, but they filed for divorce five years later. In those years that you guys were married, did he ever bring this up again, or was that just at the beginning? That was just it. That one time, yeah, at the beginning. And I remember after that, I had some questions, and I'd bring it up. But that was only during that one time, you know, during the beginning of the relationship. That was it. Because it was over, you know? I'm divorcing him, so I don't, I'm telling you the honest truth, okay? <laughs> I'm not here trying to hold his reputation together. I'm not doing that. I'm just telling you what I know as the truth. The truth, according to Vicki, is that her ex-husband did not kill Denise Johnson. She admits he was questioned by investigators, and she knows he was present at the crime scene, but she will always feel he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is a shame that he got pinned for it, or tried to get pinned, and luckily his parents got involved to stop it, because if he didn't do that, if his parents didn't have money, he would have probably been accused. I mean, I don't know what evidence they would have, but Dare County's not right, you know what I'm saying? It's Dare County, and those cops, they've got jacks, okay? They can't even take down, they can't do nothing. They're not that adequate, okay? So all they have is some man standing in front of the burning house who was the first person there because he fishes up early. So, you know, the, the citizen, you stop, you're going to go, oh my God, because he knows, no one knows what's going on because he's the first one on the road. Broda says her ex-husband's alibi was that he'd woken up got into his truck, and while driving, stumbled upon the house fire. When he pulled down the street, there was someone on a bicycle or walking. I think they were on a bike, but they're going the opposite direction. So he passed, like, they went towards them, like, passed them on the bike, right? And then he was going down the street, and then that's when he saw the, the burning house. And he thought, you know, wonder who that was. Like, where, you know, why is that, you know what I mean? Who's that person leaving, you know? Because he didn't think anything about it until he saw the burning house. Or that, what was going on. Yeah, because who on a bicycle would pass by a burning house and not stop? Right. Correct. Exactly. A person walking or biking away from the burning house at 2014 Norfolk Street was such an odd thing. Vicky says her ex-husband told police what he saw, but nothing came from it. They'd already set their sights squarely on him. From his tone, he went through some stuff because they were very serious. They were seriously looking at him. For it. You know what I mean? I'd like to see Vicky's ex-husband's statement to police. How they followed up on the person on the bike she says he told detectives about. But again, that's information the department won't be releasing from the case file anytime soon. My hope is that eventually I'll be able to ask the man for myself, his side of the story. Vicky, like the Johnson family, believes the only hope investigators have now of solving Denise's murder is someone with critical knowledge coming forward. 
there's no way they're going to find a person that did this unless there's help of the citizen around that knows, you know, hears people talking about someone's got to help them out. That thought brought me back to the online blog forum. And that's when I saw it, a single post by an anonymous user. I also believe the person knew Denise. I am almost certain, don't know why and how, but if you can check the in and out flight details around that week and compare it with people that Denise knew in Florida, we'll give a better idea. This theory seemed to suggest maybe the killer wasn't from the Outer Banks, yet the person still knew Denise and where she lived. Donnie Johnson provided some context. Well, she dated a guy for like 10 years, and they lived together and they were happy and all that. Well, then they broke up. And then she just kind of, you know, I guess got up with some wrong people or whatever. Denise being in and out of relationships and living for a period of time in Florida years before her death wasn't really new to the Johnson family. But what if we didn't know the whole story? That was another thing you know, that's always crossed my mind. And of course, a lot of people have gossiped about it because she lived in Florida for about 10 years, I guess. She lived with a guy for about eight of those years. And they were going to get married, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, they broke up. So she just kind of stayed there. How much had police actually looked into Denise's past? Kill Devil Hills Police Captain John Towler, in charge of the cold case, seems unsure. Her Florida days, I don't know. I couldn't answer the question. We know where she lived, associates down there. What could I find if I dug around? Local Telephone Services, this is Ellen. Can I help you? Denise Johnson is the complainant on the report? Yes. Okay, and what year was that from? It's it's 92. They just said simple issue, I guess. There was so much more to uncover about Denise's life, especially in the weeks leading up to her murder. I was awakened when the girlfriend had driven down from Virginia Beach and clocked Eric and Denise together. That was, I want to say, two to four weeks before she was killed. I do recall the girl telling me at at some point in time that she did not like Denise at all. She could not stand her. She did not like her at all. Next time on Counterclock. They were in the apartment downstairs. At that time, I had a shed. They were out in my yard. They were everywhere. They were going through his bedding, his knives. If you're enjoying this series, follow us on social media to get the behind-the-scenes look at the investigation. We're on Twitter at at CounterClockPod, and on Instagram, look for the handle CounterClockPodcast. CounterClock is an AudioChuck original podcast. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer. And all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Ambra.